So an opening favorite story that I have, it's a very simple story that I heard from Ajahn Suchito. And I always add at the beginning of it, once upon a time, because it's evening and it's a once upon a time type of time. So once, once upon a time, one of the monks asked a renowned forest Ajahn, so some uh, respected teacher out of the Thai forest tradition, and the question was, what is it like to see things as they really are? What is it like to see things as they really are? And I always think of this simple story archetypally um, because we all have kind of our deepest spiritual question. It'd be different for each one of us perhaps. And then every once in a while we get the incredible opportunity to be sitting with somebody that we respect, that inspires us. And then the opportunity comes to ask the question and maybe we summon the courage or somebody summons the courage to ask the question. So this, this time it was, what's it like to see things as they really are? There was an understandable air of expectation in the room. To see things as they really are is the vision of the awakened mind. What mystical insight is about to be revealed? It's ordinary, said the Ajahn, in his customary, succinct, and matter-of-fact way. What's it like to see things as they really are? What is awakening really like? It's ordinary. The first time I ever heard this story, I completely smiled. And also something in my heart kind of fell. (laughs) The part of my heart that still longs for the extraordinary. So I was thinking about how two talks ago, the reflection I was offering was was very much a reflection of, of the journey of the spiritual path. It was actually a thematic exploration through through a a feminine lens of one of the very traditional maps of awakening on this path. That talk I gave two talks ago. And so, so many of the teachings that we're giving, the techniques we're giving, what we're talking about is the area of practice where, um, I think of it as we're climbing the mountain. That's another archetype. We're making a journey, we're slogging along, we're dancing along, we're checking out the view, but we're going up somewhere to some pinnacle. We have ideas about it. We have excitement and fears about it. We have a lot of confusion about it. And so a lot of what we're developing here is that part of the path. And it's important, but it doesn't stop there. We know that intuitively, if nothing else, it doesn't stop here. And so the reflection that I want to give tonight is the journey from the pinnacle to what happens next. So the pinnacle could represent an insight. The pinnacle could represent an awakening. 
And I really think of awakenings with an S. I feel that there are as many expressions of awakening as there are human hearts and minds and bodies to awaken. And that we need all of those expressions. Every time something moves through us in the most ordinary or extraordinary way and we have the thought, wow, I think something's transforming. This is what I'm talking about with the pinnacle. I was reflecting today on how some of you have come in to talk to me over the course of the month various times and you've said something akin to, I'm doing really well. And then you give the explanation. And then the next thing you say is something akin to, it's kind of strange. You know, or it's weird. Or, you know, you come in and you go, I'm doing great. I wasn't expecting this. Or, you know, it's odd. It's unusual. And, and really what you're each saying in your own way is unfamiliar terrain. Unfamiliar terrain moved beyond what I knew, what I thought I knew. Uh, So this is this area of insight. And then there's what happens next in the practice. I feel like this is an extremely underserved area of teachings and practices. And it's one that I'm extremely passionate about. Um, One of my deepest passions in teaching these days is actually how to support myself and others to deeply integrate these insights and awakenings so that the um, clarity of them, the heart of them, the power of them gets fully expressed in this world. It's important to me. So first we should probably talk a little bit about what is an insight. I mean, we've been mentioning it all month, but just a few more fingers pointing at the moon here. The first one is from Tani Sarabhikku. Insight is not a matter of belief or contemplation, but of direct seeing. Belief and contemplation may be conducive to the seeing, so they could be helpful. And an undefined level of belief and discernment may actually guarantee that someday in this lifetime seeing will occur. But only with the actual seeing does there come a dramatic shift in the course of one's life and one's relationship to the Dhamma. So that's interesting, nothing's left out there. It's being pointed to is is direct seeing, or we could say direct sensing. Uh, But it is helpful to have fingers pointing at the moon, to have a sense of what's possible, of what could be possible. If we don't have that, it's a lot bigger leap in the heart and the mind. So that's one definition of what is an insight and a little more complex one, then I thought I'd offer a very simple one. And this is from Ayakema. And we've been mentioning Ayakema kind of off and on throughout the retreat, but I really want to acknowledge her role in Western Dhamma. Um, She was one of the very uh, kind of early fully ordained bhikkhunis 
in, in the Western culture. So she's German by birth. Uh, she's passed on now, unfortunately. And she was also one of the co-founders of this very important organization for women in Buddhism and Buddhist nuns called Sakya Ditti. Yeah, Sakya Ditti. And that organization is still um, still thriving and still supporting women in Buddhism worldwide. So this is her very simple definition of an insight, and it's the one I usually use. Aikema says, insight is understood experience. Experience that is understood is insight. Very simple. So we know from being on the whole spiritual path, we know from sitting here and walking here for a month or two, that there are many insights and awakenings, not just one. And so there's a quote that I love on this topic uh, by the Chinese master Su Yun. And I want to acknowledge um, part of the reason that I love this quote is, is to really acknowledge uh, the amount of time of this wisdom elder to have made this quote. He passed on at the age of 120. So he had a lot of time in his spiritual practice and mastery to see a lot of insights and awakenings come and go. And one comes and, I got it, enlightened retirement. And then, oh, wait a second, there's still some stuff that's a little bit messy in here. And over and over again, until it's so fully understood as an experience that this teaching came through. So he used the term satori's, so universal translator, awakening. There are many minor satori's before a major satori. And there are many major satori's on the path of genuine awakening. So types of awakening. You have a whole talk just uh, calling in all the different beautiful expressions of awakening. But uh, just to name a few. So one of them is uh, the doorway of the mind. You know, and sometimes it's very transpersonal. So I wanted to uh, share a teaching that I've been inspired by and reflecting on for years that um, was written by a Buddhist practitioner but, but isn't particularly in the, in the Buddhist canon at all. And it's actually uh, a teaching in the book The Color Purple by Alice Walker. So again, it's like thinking about new generations coming through here in the Dhamma. You know, Alice Walker is one of our local luminaries here. I'm sure some of us know her. And she's the first African-American woman to receive the Pulitzer Prize for this book. And so at one point in this book, there's this incredible insight that has long uh, inspired me for reflection. One day when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me. That feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and I ran all over the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't 
miss it. It's like, I bet some of us in this retreat have had our own unique expression, something like that, the transpersonal. It's like the me becomes the us, becomes the we, moves beyond the individual. It's powerful. We have awakenings through the doorway of the psychological and the emotional, right? So many of you have come to visit me and I've been really touched, you know, the, the trust and the courage to really lay it down and say, hey, uh, this is the core belief that just got recognized that maybe wasn't fully recognized before or is more fully recognized now. What's a core belief? When I think about core beliefs, they're, they're beliefs that create operating principles for how we function as human beings. And they usually got developed a long time ago to save our hearts and our lives. So I've really learned over the years with my own operating principles or core beliefs, um, as they get revealed, the light gets shined, they start to dissolve, we start to see other options, it gets bigger to really take some time for gratitude with those defenses that saved our hearts and our lives. And that can be part of the inclusion of that insight process, of that transformation process of who we take ourselves to be. And it's really important work that we're doing here. So that's another example. Here's yet another example. Oh, and this comes from uh, a wonderful book. It's, it's been around a long time now by Jack Cornfield. And it's called After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. So it's basically a whole book on, you know, you have an insight, you have some sort of awakening, and then what? So if you need resources after the retreat, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, okay? So here's a practitioner saying, um, and she was working with some pain you know, some emotional, psychological pain. And in this moment, I could feel my pain change to the pain, the pain of the world. I saw how the universe moves and the planet is on fire. And yet it could all be held and it didn't touch anything. It rested in the middle of an immense peace. So I was just thinking in this moment about the compassion phrases that I shared with you. When was that? A long time ago. I don't know, a couple weeks ago. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. For me, that's why it's this pain. And then when it feels most authentic to use a pronoun, I use a pronoun because it's all included. But sometimes the way that we uh, language our heart practices helps us move into this territory. And other times it needs to be really personal to actually include the wholeness of our awakening process, right? So we've got heart awakenings, emotional, psychological awakenings, mind awakenings. How about body awakenings? Do you think it counts as an awakening when there's been 
ongoing pain and ongoing red alert in the system and then all of a sudden grace happens and the pain continues but that second arrow just falls to the ground flat on its face and there's peace do you think that counts i hope you think that counts that's a real moment of freedom and may we live long lives that's a moment of direct experience of insight and freedom that's going to support us to live in these bodies for a long life, right? Sometimes the body disappears when we're practicing. Sometimes the body gets filled up with light or we get hit by lightning. You might think, I don't want to get hit by lightning. Well, that's okay. Maybe you won't. Maybe you will. Hard to say. Bodies are mysterious creatures. And they show their wisdom, whether it's the wisdom of the ancient nervous system or whether it's um, something else. They show their wisdom in so many different forms. So I'm kind of riffing here. I'm, I'm kind of blending like from really, really natural, ordinary insights all the way up into like this awakening word. Because to be perfectly honest with you all, I'm, I'm getting, there's a part of me that's getting a little bit worried about us lay Western practitioners. And I'll tell you what my worry is. And uh, hopefully it's not a relevant worry. But sometimes a worry arises in me that it's like, mm, I don't know, some sort of collective belief that I sense sometimes. So like, oh, we're not monastics oh, we don't meditate two, four hours a day. I'm sure some of you do, but probably most of you don't. All the things that we don't do, I haven't renounced the amount that Oren was pointing to last night. I'm not there yet. So awakening couldn't possibly visit here. I'm too psychologically screwed up. You know, I'm living in a culture that is oppressive. I couldn't possibly wake up. And there's a lot of truth to all that, right? But um, folks, awakening is available. In all of its forms, including the traditional expressions. And some of us have had teachers that we really have trust that they're expressing that. And they may not be in the Buddhist tradition. They may be somewhere else in our lives or we've been inspired by somebody or we've had our own deep experiences. And that's a beautiful thing when we have that to rest back in. When we don't, you're welcome to borrow my trust or you're welcome to throw it out. But if I don't say it, right? So I'm saying it. So, Insight happens, transformation happens, release happens, everything happens, and then what happens? Right? So I'll tell you what I was hoping for. I was hoping for enlightened retirement. Seriously. In some ways because when I came onto this path, there was so much desperation in um, this body and this heart Uh, for various different reasons that I just was hoping that if I just suffered enough and worked hard enough and practiced hard enough that then I could be free and then I could live happily ever after. (laughs) Right? So it was like I didn't really want to admit that because I knew it wasn't really true but actually I wanted to live happily ever after. (laughs) And 
practice works. I actually came in pretty screwed up. It could have been worse, but it wasn't great. The situation of the body and the mind and, and different things that I was dealing with, you know, living in this culture at this time. Um, practice works. So when things started, you know, moving through, transforming, insights started really deepening in me. It was like there was a period where I actually had grief and I was actually quite upset that it was like, wait a second, I thought that, like, I could just get somewhere and stop. And that wasn't how it worked. So I developed this model out of that whole process. And it's a model of a tripod, okay? So on the left side of the tripod, or I guess it's your right, anyway, over here, is ordinary, okay? Just ordinary. is human beings, we all experience and express ordinary kindness, ordinary patience, and actually, cumulatively, it's not just ordinary, it changes our whole lives and our whole world, and it's a gift. But it's just natural human capacity, right? Then we climb the mountain, we discover some spiritual book, we go to a talk or hook into something online, we start training some tradition, maybe another tradition. You know, we're Westerners, so we have a lot of options. Uh, this is fairly new, all these options. Anyway, we go up the mountain, we go up the mountain, and then there's some insight or whatever you want to call it. It's like, aha, uh-huh, something starts to transform. Wow, I always thought I was going to have that core belief, and now there's this sense of like, I might be more than that. Well, you know, name a few core beliefs that are really um, common. Beliefs like, I'm not good enough. That's a huge one. Beliefs like, I don't need anything. Now, that one gets really complicated when we start looking at renunciation. Because like, if we've got an operating principle that I'm only okay if I don't need anything, and then we're like, yeah, I've let go of everything, but in fact, we're just feeding an operating principle. That's a little complex. So they are complex. Um, The world isn't a safe place, another core belief. So sometimes there's truth in them, but when they become an operating principle and run our lives, it's limited. So we get up here and up here, so we've got ordinary. Up here is extraordinary. Ta-da! Something transformed, something illuminated. Okay, this is not a tripod. This is just two points. Now we've got over on this side, uh, on my right and your left. And this is ordinary. Okay, but it's not this ordinary. It's not other than this ordinary. You following? Because it's informed by extraordinary. So it's an ordinary expression of what's been understood in direct experience. This is hugely important because whatever became clearer to us here, if we go home and start preaching to our family and friends, uh, you know, they, they may be compassionate and patient with us, and they may not. Right? So the expression of extraordinary in an ordinary way is one of the most powerful expressions that we can offer this world of what we've understood. That it doesn't have to be special, even though we treasure it. So ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. Ordinary, solid, separate sense of self. Extraordinary, oh my goodness, it really isn't personal. There's no self. It's not the way I thought. Ordinary. 
understanding that there's a selfing process going on and allowing that selfing process to be a service. Using it to be a service. Ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. So there's a line from Joseph Goldstein that I love. I say to myself a lot when I'm working in this territory from extraordinary to ordinary. And so someone will have an insight and go in and tell Joseph, you know, Joseph, I had this insight. You're like, what's he going to say if you like him? And one of the common things that he'll say is he'll smile. He'll just do one of those little Joseph smiles. And uh, he'll say, wonderful. Then he'll say, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's always the tip of the iceberg. When I first heard that, it was like I got excited and my heart fell. So the heart fell the part that just didn't want it to be the tip of the iceberg. But then there's this excitement. And now I just say to myself, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's always the tip of the iceberg. Okay? So talking about how this next process works, right? From extraordinary to ordinary over here. I want to bring back in Upasaka Ki. And just drop in this, uh, this one more, uh, one more invitation into the, f- the field of awakeness. Uh, because what I want to share with you is something that she wrote about an incredibly powerful and transformative awakening that she had that changed her whole life. And then what happened next? Because this is her unique story. So it's important. We have a unique process on the spiritual path. But there are themes in here that are archetypal. One night, I was sitting in meditation outside in the open air. My back straight as an arrow. Firmly determined to make the mind quiet, but even after a long time, it wouldn't settle down. Do we know that one? So I thought, I've been working at this for many days now, and yet my mind, my mind won't settle down at all. It's time to stop being so determined and simply be aware of the mind. Okay, so this is a moment of tending to the attitude of mind of wise effort. She said, I started to take my hands and feet out of the meditation posture. But at the moment that I had unfolded one leg, but had yet to unfold the other, I could see that my mind was like a pendulum, swinging more and more slowly, more and more slowly, until it stopped. Then there arose an awareness that was sustained by itself. Slowly I put my legs and hands back into position. At the same time the mind was in a state of awareness, absolutely and solidly still, seeing clearly into the elementary phenomenon of existence as they arose 
and disbanded. Changing in line with their nature and also seeing a separate condition inside with no arising, disbanding, or changing. A condition beyond birth and death. Something very difficult to put clearly into words because it's a realization completely internal and individual. After a while, I slowly got up and lay down to rest. This state of mind remained there as a stillness that sustained itself deep down inside. Eventually, the mind came out of this state and gradually returned to normal. And then a whole bunch of insights arose out of that. So there's some themes here that are important and, you know, that if we don't recognize, we can uh, get really confused about what's happening in practice. So it's very, very common that there's a cycle right before something opens up and reveals itself that can include energies like restlessness or like the mind feels more all over the place than before for no real apparent reason. Now, of course, there could be other reasons that the mind's all over the place, the nervous system's disrupted or whatever, but there are other reasons, right? And that shift of the, oh, I'm trying too hard, I'm trying to make something happen, is huge. And resting back. And each one of us has listened and felt for that shift and rested back over and over again here. It matters that we're doing this because sometimes it actually creates the conditions for something new to be revealed. And so there's this incredible experience of touching into the interrelation between conditions and unconditions. And that's an experience. It's also very common that those kind of experiences linger for a while as a kind of state. And then the mind returns to normal, as she put it. But it's not the same normal, okay? It's informed by extraordinary, right? So these pieces are important. This, this piece about the experience, about the way that the mind tries to hold on to experience. And we're not in charge of the experience or the lingering or the dispersal because the lingering and the dispersal is back in the world of change. It's still conditioned. So usually what happens as soon as an insight happens or something transforms in us and we recognize it, small or big, there's some sort of something that happens, we all know the thing that happens next is the mind jumps in and it jumps in loud and it jumps in fast and it starts chattering. What happened? That's often the first thought if there's some amazing meditation experience. What happened? And then it starts going, wow, maybe it was the concentration. Oh my goodness, where did it go? I gotta adjust my posture. And, And then it starts making a world, right? So what it's doing actually is it's concretizing something that arose. 
It's making, it starts to make meaning. And it's all about me. You know, I mean, I don't know if this is true for you, but I'm assuming it is. When some insight moves through me, the thinking that happens afterward is not about you. (laughs) Don't come out of an insight and go, wow, I wonder what's happening for everybody else in the room. That's not what tends to happen. It becomes very self-referential. Why? Because a lot of times, whether it's... uh, a big deal or a little deal, just to put some terms on it, the sense of self fell in the background. Sometimes it disappears. And even if it just disappears, it's disappearing in the timeless. So it doesn't matter if relative time was like that because it accessed a portal to something that's beyond time. So then the sense of self feels threatened, of course. Disorientation, you know, like, hey, what about me? I mean, that makes sense. I can have compassion for that sense of self. It's like, oh, sweetheart, don't worry. No one's trying to get killed off here. There was just a break. You got a little nap after all these years. Okay? That's such a different attitude of mind of like, I can't stand this mind. I thought I just had an awakening experience, and now I'm worse than ever. No way already in integration. And sometimes it happens really fast and sometimes there's a process first of like, it echoes through us for a while. And you know, it's just tremendous joy and aliveness and gratitude and uplift and awe. And then the sense of self jumps back in. It varies a lot, you know, but everything in its season. So this is a quote on this process I really like from Pema Chodron. She says, don't hang on to anything, even the realization there is nothing to hang on to. It's so humbling, isn't it? I feel like humility as a quality on the spiritual path is, um, doesn't get enough airtime. It's it's not a very sexy quality, maybe. Um, It's a quality for me that was so hard won um, and it's it's still always a work in progress. It's a lifelong journey, of course. Um, for me, humility was very difficult to cultivate to be able to meet these cycles of despair and and aha, mainly because of that um, sense of self of inflation and deflation, and the way that that pendulum swings. You know, Upasaka Q's pendulum of the mind stops swinging, but that pendulum of you know. I'm not good enough, for real. And there's nothing I can do to make me good enough. That sets off that pendulum inevitably to that we overact to be better. And sometimes it's an internal process, but also there's a lot of cultural conditioning that backs this up. You know, if we're in marginalized groups and like, I gotta show up more, you know, to be the woman sitting here. It happens, it happens. Um, And so it swings, and it swings from personal reasons, and it swings from systemic reasons, and humility is nowhere to be found in those swings. Because the quality of humility is being one of many. So when we meet that mind that roars to the foreground after something amazing's happened, and it seems even more screwed up than before, if we can meet it with the humility of, oh, this is what minds do, this is what all minds do, This is what my mind does. Then there's so much compassion and sense of humor and allowing. 
And it's that same shift of the attitude of mind that often supports an insight to arise. Oh, I need to rest back and not push so hard. It's like the harder we try to get out of the inflation and deflation, the more that thing swings, right? It's not the way out. There's also um, such a connection with Oren's childhood cat, Mindy. I loved that story. Did you love that story? It's really visceral for me, that, that story he told at the beginning of last night. So it's like I'm calling it back into my body right now of this little cat and this little creature and the faucet on outside and the fascination. It's like, oh, oh, maybe if I just keep tracking impermanence, maybe there'll be something interesting here. You know? and, and, and what's so tricky about it is there is something interesting there, so then it fuels that place of mind that isn't so helpful. And then little Mindy is like trying to catch the water and then open the paw and look at it and hold it. Where did it go? Where did the insight come from? We're sitting here minding your own business, walking here minding your own business, and all of a sudden there's an aha. That's another word for an insight, an aha. And the 12-step tradition called moment of clarity. And it just comes. Where does it come from? We can say causes and conditions, but really it's appearing, right? And if we try to grab it and then look at it, I gotta hold it. I'm gonna hold that water. It's like, no, no, it doesn't work that way. But we want it to work that way. Of course we do. Why? Because we care about seeing clearly. So can we drop down a level and feel the caring about seeing clearly instead of grasping on to the meditation experience in which we saw clearly. This is huge. In that case, we actually get to rest with the knowing, what was known, instead of chasing after something that's falling water, that's slipping through our fingers or our paws, right? So we mistake the experience for the essence. Really common. So then these thoughts start to rise. I'm sure some of you will recognize these thoughts. I want to live my whole life like this. Oh good, I'm so glad I'm not the only one that's had that thought. (laughs) The other thought I've had a lot is, oh no, I'm going to leave the retreat and lose it. You know, and that one is actually, uh, can be kind of excruciating. Again, it's tricky because it's like we believe it because there is some truth in it. We are going to lose it because everything slides through our fingers. The experiences, the conceptual understandings that come out of the experiences, the whole thing's moving. The good news about that is it's the tip of the iceberg. So if it's moving, let's let it move. May full awakening be ours. Not when we're better people. Now. You know? Not when we've got it all worked out. And even though we're going to keep offering everything we've got to make the world a better place, not when the world's a better place either. The conditions are here. They're right here. 
So I want to live my whole life like this. I'm totally terrified I'm going to lose it. And so, you know, I remember my teacher saying to me, um, you know, and, and, and it always sounded in my mind like it was these, these great grandiose statements. At a certain point, I kind of look at them, I'd be like, do they even remember what this was like? You know, so I'm not going to say it that way. <laughs> I do remember what it was like. Um, but they would say something to the effect of, you will forget all this. And you will remember So we may not remember the way that we tend to think remembering is important, but something remembers and starts to live it. Coming back to this quality of mindfulness, why the continuity is so important, because it's a continuity of remembering what we know, what is known. It's so important. So one of the practices that I do when the mind's moving into, oh, there was this transformation of heart and now I'm planning how that's going to live out in this relationship in my life. And I have a week left of the retreat. No one here is doing that, right? (laughs) Right. So it happens. So how do we practice with it? You know, because really we can give away the whole last week of our retreat if we don't have the, the commitment and the care to practice with it. So one of many ways we can practice with it that I've worked with is, oh, so now there's this whole plan and idea about this relationship and how this opening of compassion in, in a real full way is going to support that relationship, planning, planning, doing the conversations blow by blow. It's three hours later. I forgot to get up when the bell rang. I'm still sitting here playing out this fantasy. It happens. I've had it happen. And so to start with recognition, always we start with recognition when we see that. It's like we try to come back to the breath, but then something in us says, but it feels important, right? That's what happens. So if you can keep it simple and stick your oar in the water and come back to the step and come back to the breath or whatever you come back to, great. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you can't and something in you calls, but this is important, what you want to acknowledge to the mind is to say, yes, thank you. This is important. This whole thought train is pointing out how much I value this new understanding and this relationship. Yes, thank you. And then we can pendulate. And we can pendulate a couple different directions. We can pendulate into the body experience associated with living a new way. So if the thoughts won't stop, it's like, fine, they're going. Rest back and fully embody what it feels like here and now to have a conversation that's never happened before. To be able to speak a truth that there wasn't courage to speak before. Whatever it is, really feel it right here in this body and let this body bookmark it and absorb it and carry that memory into the future, right? So that is not a traditional instruction, but you could try it. Another place we can pendulate is from all that planning and creating a world that will never exist in that way. And we know that, but we plan anyway. 
is we can actually pendulate into our deeper longing for freedom. Because usually all that planning is that we care so much about waking up or however you articulate it to yourself and actually living that in our lives. Drop down a level and feel that. Nurture that. All these thoughts and plans are coming from this beautiful root of wanting to express myself in a heartful or more free way. Feel that. So that that can lead. So those are just a couple ways. So speaking of dropping down a level, um, for those of you that are in a cycle, and I'm very aware that some of you are, uh, you're in this low cycle, right? Where it's like, it's hard. When is the retreat going to be over? And then the other side of you is like, I hope it never ends. And then we're in the double bind. It's such a double bind. Like, can we hold it in wholeness of heartfulness and awareness? It's like, oh, I hope it ends soon feels like this. You know, I hope it never ends feels like this. Can we feel it in wholeness? They don't have to be in conflict, but sometimes they feel that way. So it's actually not uncommon after something new is revealed to us to go through a difficult cycle. Uh, Sometimes we call it purification. Sometimes we call it an emotional wreck. So just as a possibility, I'm not saying it's always so, but the next time you have an emotional wreck, check and see whether something revealed itself or um, expressed itself was understood in your practice in the last cycle. It may be a really small thing. You may have missed it. I've literally learned to say to myself, when the emotional wreck comes, what if practice is progressing? What if it isn't derailing? What if it's actually deepening into areas of the heart and mind that there wasn't capacity to bear witness to before? I actually think there's a lot of truth to that. So it's such a different um, tone to bring to experience when things are really hard. Instead of, I lost it. I feel like I lost my meditation. I lost the retreat. I might as well just go home. What if you just said to yourself, practice is progressing. And if that feels inauthentic, how about practice is continuing? Just a possibility. So I wanted to share with you a reading from a chapter in a book by Ajahn Sumedho that is called When You Are an Emotional Wreck. Great chapter title, I think. And so he's talking about, you know, working with this, being informed by the practice, which is really different than being informed by our conditioning. It says, then going into the heart, oftentimes it's amorphous. It's not always clean, neat, and tidy, he says, like the intellect. Emotions can be all over the place. And then sometimes the intellect says, oh, emotional things are so messy. So this is a a great quote and teaching by him, but you can also really see the gender conditioning in it. Uh, You can't trust them, those emotions. And and then I feel embarrassed. It's embarrassing. I don't want to be considered emotional. Ajahn Sumedho is very emotional. Whoa, I don't want anybody to think that. 
I'm reasonable. Now, I like that. Intelligent, reasonable, kind. But say Ajahn Sumedho is emotional, and it makes me sound like I'm wet and weak, doesn't it? He cries, he weeps, he's wet, he's all over the place. Ugh. You know, so he's going through his stuff, right? And I love it that he's willing to share going through his stuff. So maybe you think of Ajahn Sumedho as mindful. That's nice. So then he talks about emotions. Emotions are oftentimes ignored, rejected, not appreciated. We don't learn from them because of that. At least I found this easy to do myself. He said, so in this mindfulness, clearly seen, clear comprehension, it is like opening and being willing to be a mess. Let a mess be a mess. It's like this. Can we say that to ourselves? This is a mess. Let a mess be a mess. It's like this. It doesn't mean anything about the depth of our spiritual journey. It means it's a mess. A relief. <laughs> Little relief. You know, because we'll fall into these kind of pits of like, oh, I've, I've sat this two-month retreat, or, you know, you go home and people in your sitting group, wow, two months. <laughs> or you talk to somebody at work and they're like, you were silent for a month. And then we start to try to, like, um, make our personality fit in with that projection field. <laughs> I better be more patient because they think I just did this thing and I know I had that insight so the only way that insight could be real is if I act like this. So this is part of the world of spiritual bypassing. Spiritual bypassing has been referenced multiple times in this retreat but I want to call in the the uh, psychologist and teacher that coined this term, that founded this term, Um, is John Wellwood, and he actually just passed away earlier this year. So I'm just calling him in. It's important to me that um, when our elders pass on, we keep their voices in the world. So John Wellwood on spiritual bypassing is a term I coined to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community I was in and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. When we are spiritually bypassing, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence. Trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced and made peace with it. So I will never forget sitting at the dinner table a long time ago in the two-month retreat here periods with a family member And I don't remember what I said, but I remember his response. He looked at me across that table and said, well, Heather, aren't you the queen of Buddhist judgment? (laughs) And I went, oh, yeah. 
you know, the people in our lives that we trust <laughs> and who really know us can be incredibly good teachers. Uh, I was glad that I didn't miss that one. I was glad that that was pointed out. What Oren was saying this morning, it's so hard to see what we can't see. And I was really bypassing at that point and like, you know, I was, I was trying to present in this one way and it just like leaked out at the dinner table and man, he just jumped all over it. He was having none of my spiritual transcendence. Bless his heart. <laughs> you know, you gotta feel sorry for the people in our lives when we're going through stuff like that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's this piece about... Um, that life, our experience of being human actually tests what we've understood and how deep and penetrating it is and the areas where it hasn't penetrated yet, which is different than saying the areas we failed. I say the areas it hasn't penetrated yet because it is penetrating through the system. We're not in control of the time on that. We keep practicing. So there was a period of, of time, actually several different times in my own practice where it was just like, yeah, allowing awareness itself. I'm not using awareness to fill in for mindfulness when I say it that way. Um, allowing the deeper knowing itself to show me what was included and what was left out. I did that over the course of years, working with strong emotions, working with areas of my life where there wasn't, you know, there could be more consciousness, but there wasn't yet. It was very difficult, actually. It was incredibly messy. But it was totally worth it because at the end of it, I knew myself so much better. This is what Ajahn Sumedho did. Once I developed the awareness of this real refuge, I began to deliberately challenge situations where I'd been criticized and which used to be unbearable for me because I couldn't take criticism. They like you for a while and then they find fault with you. You're a great teacher, Ajahn Sumedho. And then they say, I've lost faith in you, Ajahn Sumedho. It's hard to bear. He says, as I have confidence in the awareness... I can bear that criticism now, the rejection and the blame, even if it's totally unfair. My refuge is in awareness, not in my self-image or in the conditions around me. So as we start to access deeper refuge, whatever that means to us, then whether it's our individual process or it's really working with the systems that are holding us down, you know, because there's two different layers of this. It's not just an individual process. It's also systemic. It's like, oh, more and more of a sense of our own inner refuge. And when we're doing the systemic work, sangha, community, you know, it's that togetherness. And this process of testing what's been understood. What can I show up for now? What can I bear witness to now? What is not quite ready yet? Trusting that somebody else is ready. It's us. It's totally us. So 
there's one last thing I want to mention over here in ordinary, informed by extraordinary, which is at some point, this new ordinary, informed by extraordinary, becomes familiar. And it's not uncommon that we'll feel like we've lost something there. It's like, wow, I I had this opening in meditation and now it feels like it's gone. Look again, because sometimes it's actually become so familiar, it's our new way of being. And so it's not special and so we miss it. Then we can start to really inhabit the ordinariness informed by the extraordinariness because it's living through us. It's not something we're bringing in anymore. It's something that we are. So it's really important. It's from there that we can live with humility and with care and offer our service, right? So two closing quotes. One is by uh, the African-American mystic and activist Howard Thurman. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Um, This is by the white woman, Dorothy Day, uh, the woman's rights activist in the Catholic tradition. You will know your vocation by the joy that it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. So that's a good place to end, resting in the aliveness. We are coming alive here. Thank you for calling in the aliveness through your own unique expression. And if the joy of that is available, don't wait, drink it in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.